when you see him coming, let me know, okay? When I see the guy with my coffee? <laughs> yeah, let me know. And that's how we start. <laughs> I'm with Dr. Ian Smith, and we are at the Harvard Club in New York City. This this place is too nice for me to be here. No, it's not. This place is awesome. This place is old. It's historic. It's quiet. Yeah. It's like you can feel the history in the walls. It's like, you know... Tapestries. It's just, I love this room. It's my favorite room in New York City. It's gorgeous. We're looking at a ceiling that's got to be 50 feet high, would you guess? Close? Yeah, close to 50. Right? Giant chandelier that's got to be, that's, that chandelier alone has to be at least 100 years old. At yeah. least. Yeah. yeah, at least. And then there's portraits on the wall. Walk-in fireplace. You can walk right into that fireplace. I see that. <laughs> it's like shooting a basketball in there. You can, You know what? You put up a couple hoops. We can have a good time in here. Pretty cool, huh? It's like it's almost. It's just short of a full court basketball, right? Full yeah, court basketball in here. Yeah. And who are the portraits on the wall? Who are they? The portraits. Distinguished gentlemen. Yes. Um, gentlemen of Harvard. A lot of the presidents, the ex-presidents of Harvard, and you know, of. Um, of the U.S., for example, Teddy Roosevelt went, Franklin Roosevelt, right. Kennedy, right? All these guys were presidents. Did they hang out in this this location? Um, yeah, this place this place has been around for a while. I don't know. Um, I don't think Kennedy did, but um, but a lot of the this was back in eighteen. I got to think when this place was even founded, eighteen something, right? Um, but um, it's very venerable, very old. Wow! Look at my coffee coming, <laughs> fancy. <laughs> I just wanted a cup of coffee. I didn't need the whole... How you doing? Good to see you. You got the coffee? Oh, yeah. That's me, man. Thank you. Ooh. Look at the Harvard seal on the the coffee cup. My God. Fancy. I went to Geneseo. Little SUNY school. Okay. He doesn't care. (laughs) Then you sign your little name here. Okay. Thank Thank you. you. Okay. So, um, what is the history of the Harvard Club? So... There are two major clubs, Harvard Club. There's one Harvard Club of Boston, and there's a Harvard Club of New York City. And basically, these Ivy League clubs, different, like Princeton has one, Columbia has one. These uh, Penn is across the street, Yale is around the corner, unfortunately. But these Ivy League clubs basically are kind of um, places of, of, of rest, places of comfort mm-hmm. um, that people in the city can come to for meetings. There are rooms upstairs, so I stay upstairs a lot. When I come into the city, um, you have parties here. I've had, you know, my 30th birthday party was here. Nice. In one of the rooms upstairs. And there's always lunch. There's a nice dinner, uh, dining hall next to us. So it's just a place to meet up and hang out. Where's the secret chamber? <laughs> yeah. You, 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 I'm going to start knocking on walls and, and pulling the portraits down. I'm going to find the secret chamber. You know what's crazy? So um, Ivan Boski yeah. of the 80s, um, the financial guy who got caught for insider trading. Sure. He did a lot of his malfeasance here in the Harvard Club. Really? And so they passed the Ivan Boski rule that you could not conduct business or have open briefcases or, or work because a lot of his insider training, trading stuff happened here at the Harvard Club. No kidding. In New York. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And the, also, the other thing was also that he was not a Harvard. So to join the Harvard Club, you have to be either a Harvard alum right. or Harvard affiliated like a professor. He had like a very tangential affiliation. He wasn't even really, he was never an alum or anything, but they gave him access to it. So they tightened up <laughs> Dudaposki, who could actually become members of the club. It's pretty funny. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, is this like part of like a, a secret society? Well, Are we talking secret society right here? Well, the club is not 
Secret Society, but a lot of the members of the Secret Societies are members of the... I saw a guy earlier today who actually is a member of the Delphic, which is the Secret Society that's at the heart uh, of my novel, The Ancient Nine. And I, I saw him. He, did, he was on the phone, but I didn't talk to him. But yeah, but a lot of the members are here. When you recognize Secret uh, Society members? He was in my club. Really? He was in my society. And what is a Secret Society? So Harvard, like Harvard has these secret societies called final clubs. Right. They were started back in the 1700s. Aren't they just fraternities? No. Very different. You're smiling at me. Well, <laughs> because that's a, that's a very common misconception. <laughs> What's the difference between a, uh, a final club and a uh, frat house? Uh, a final club is more expensive to join, mm-hmm. has a lot of formal events like black tie dinners, right. um, has a staff that serves and cooks um, has um, uh, and they stay in the, the we have the, our clubhouses are these you know 10 to 15 million dollar mansions huge brick mansions that go back to the 1700s so there's a lot of history no, no, no that doesn't not to say that we don't have fun we have parties we, you know people drink and stuff but there's a more formalized uh, slant to a final club and the history is unbelievable I mean you're talking the presidents have been members. Roosevelt, both Roosevelt's, Teddy and Franklin, John F. Kennedy, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., T.S. Eliot, the great poet. These guys were all members. And so you don't really, well, you, you do find out who are members kind of, you don't wear it around your chest, I'm a member of this club. But eventually word gets out, oh yeah, he's a member of the AD, he's a member of the PC, he's a member of the Fly, he's a Delphic guy. You get, you get to they, learn who's a... Are they running the world, as some would say? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, these guys are like... You know, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, partners in big law firms, governors, Governor Deval Patrick, formerly of, of, of Massachusetts, uh, Fly Club. I mean, these, yeah, these guys are, and not, I mean, other people obviously run the world too. Yeah. But a lot of prominent Americans and international leaders, the King of Nepal was, was in the final club. This, this room is kind of creeping me out. Do well, you if you think this creeps you out, what do you see, if you could see the real club, the, the secret society rooms? Can I? In Boston, we gotta, we gotta go to Boston. We gotta do a trip in Boston. I would love I'll to take do you that. in. <laughs> but the furniture in here is so old. The chandeliers, the lights, the high ceiling, the the really old art on the walls, the portraits. I feel spirits in this room for real. Very antiquated. You know, that's kind of the, the like, Harvard look. Right. It absolutely is antiquated, but in a cool way. Yeah. I feel like I'm on a on a movie set. Well, you know what's crazy is that the reason why I love coming here is because New York, as we, you and I both love New York, we know how fast-paced it is, how energetic, how loud it is. Yeah. But you come in here, and it's like a sanctuary. Like, yeah. You don't even know you're in New York. Like, I'm looking at cars passing by in the street and people walking. You can't hear anything. No. What? What is just, that about? Just a pair of air, because this is like a little sanctuary for yeah. you. A place of respite. And, and, and you feel like you're, uh, you took a few steps into the past being in this room. It's kind of cool. It's also very calming, right? I yeah, mean, very. You just feel kind absolutely. of, you know, you come off the streets of New York, people are beeping, honking, yelling, then you walk in here and everything is just chill. Right. So that's how we start. I, I've known Dr. Ian Smith for how long now? Jeez, at least 10 years. At least 10, 12 years. Maybe more, right? Yeah. And I'm used to you uh, writing books about, you know, what were some of the titles? All diet books. Shred. Right. Super shred, right. take control diet. Yeah, the clean twenty was the last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm walking the streets. Last week was it already? Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm Instagramming live, and there's Dr. Ian Smith, and he taps me on the shoulder, and we caught up because we are, you know, good friends. And then you're, I go, "What are you doing in New York City?" And and you're like, "I got a, a book." And I almost no offense, I was rolling my eyes like, "I can't do another shred book. I can't do it." <laughs> 
I'd be rolling my eyes too, trust me. <laughs> I would too. I would love to know what you bought with the money you made from those books. But with that said, I'm like, Tuition. I'm like, no, not another one. And, and you know what I mean? And then you hand me this book called The Ancient Nine by Ian K. Smith. Uh, I took the doctor off. I saw that. Purposely. Why? Because, because I want people to know that this is about fiction. It's not about health and wellness, though hopefully it will make you healthy by making you laugh and engage you. But this is a, strictly about fiction. I want you to realize this is a novel. Right. A, so I, I'm looking at this book, and I'm like turning over the cover and stuff. I'm like, I don't see any fruit or vegetables on the cover. What's going on here? <laughs> and then quickly I learned that, yeah, you wrote a novel. Yeah. So I'm like, hey, man, I would love to get you on the podcast. And you're like, let's do it from the Harvard Club. You went to Harvard. I did. And uh, Long time ago. So I need to tell you. That, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to have him on my podcast. And a lot of times people give me books to read, and I'm like, ah, all right, let me at least read a few pages. So if I talk to the guy, I know what I'm talking about. I am here. This is the first major plug for The Ancient Nine. I started reading this thing. I was hooked within five pages and read. It's, it's a long book. It's over yeah. 400 pages. Yeah. I read it in three days. Do you understand I have two small kids? <laughs> you understand how almost impossible that is? I do. I do. And I also, you know, for an author who writes in the genre of suspense, mystery, and thriller, to hear a reader say that to you, um, to say that I was captivated, I read it so fast, I couldn't stop reading it. That is what you strive for. Yeah. Just like a comedian strives for people to be falling out of their seats um, or to laugh when they're not even saying anything. Yeah. An author of my genre strives for what you and That's yeah. gold to me. And, and I had a lot to do. <laughs> And I, I read about half of it. And I'm like, you know what? I, I know enough of about the book uh, that I, I could, you know, pull off an interview with my friend. Yeah. But I didn't want to put the thing down. So, you know, my kids are running around like lunatics. <laughs> my wife's like, what you? I'm like, I got to finish this thing because it was so good, man. So explain the book. Uh, yeah. So um, this book um, is something I've been working on for 25 years when I was a senior in college. It's based on my experience. Well, as a, all right, let's slow you down there. Yeah. You started the book 25 years ago. When I was a senior in college and when I was a member of this uh, final club, the Delphic, I knew that I wanted to tell this story somehow, some way, someday. Um, and so when I was a senior, I started writing it because I wanted the geography of the story and the yeah. feelings and emotions to be fresh. Yeah. I knew if I tried to write it 10, 15 years later... I'd have to kind of make it up or try to go back. I also did a lot of research. So all the mystery in the book about about the text, the old, ancient, that's all true. Right. And so I had to use Harvard's library. So I wanted to do it while I had access rather than being an alum and have to come back and everything else. That's, so some, I, that's some severe foreshadowing that you're like, I'm going to start this book and I want the freshness of Harvard and Cambridge and Boston in general in my head. So, But because I knew that the story is so unique. No one has ever written extensively about the Harvard Final Clubs. No one. And I Why is that, by the way? Because... There's a lot of mystery there, There's huh? a lot of mystery there. People don't often talk about it. You know, it's kind of an, an unspoken thing, okay? And I, but I knew I wanted to talk about it because I felt like my experience was so unique and so interesting that I think other people would be intrigued by what happens behind these ivy walls. And so I started writing it 25 years ago, and I kept tweaking it and modifying it and tweaking it. I finally decided to release it this year because the university is trying to disband the clubs. The university is putting a lot of pressure. Um, the university doesn't own the clubs, by the way. That's the problem. The clubs are owned by the graduate members. 
who right. are still active. So they own the clubhouses, they own the club. So the university can't tell them what to do. So now the university is trying to pressure them by uh, penalizing them. Members cannot be captains of varsity sports teams. They can't be hold um, offices in student government, and they cannot get recommendations for like scholarships, like the Rhodes Scholar or the Fulbright, whatever. So they're trying to pressure these clubs to either disband or open up. Why is that? You think? Well, they feel like it's a unlevel playing field. But I mean, it's part of the history of that whole is, area. It is, but but you know. But Harvard itself, the complexion of Harvard is more diverse. No women are allowed in clubs or have not been allowed in clubs. Very few minorities. Uh, no racial kind of diversity. No religious diversity. And they just felt as though it was not representative, reflective of the university at large. Harvard's right. changed a lot. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So uh, clubs not allowing women and clubs also not allowing minorities for the longest time. Yeah. Where do you fall on that being a man? Well, my opinion can on you that, Can you... Can you understand what the women go through, that they're not oh, allowed yeah, in these clubs yeah. because you're a minority that had to wait? Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. For, there is an intrinsic advantage being a member of this club. these clubs. I can look in the directory and call up my fellow brothers who are leaders in many disciplines throughout the world and say, hey, can you help me out? I need a meeting. I need this. Or help my kid out. Help my friend out. And they'll take my call, whereas you, just coming off the street, calling them up out of the booth, cold calling them, they're they're not going to respond. So there is, an, there is a level of access that you get being members. And, and part of, you know, as you know, networking in this country is pivotal to all kinds of successes. Who you know sometimes, not right. always what you know. So this story opens up in 1927. Two guys are trying to break into the Duffick man- Mansion, uh, which is my club. People, students have tried for years to break into these clubs. There are a lot of artifacts in these clubs, a lot of treasures. There's a lot of lore and legend about what's inside these clubs. So students have try to break in for a long time. They're heavily guarded and armed. Um, I just went back up to my club three weeks ago in Boston, and uh, there are signs that let you know. It's it's alarmed. They got sensors. They got cameras up, more than what we had back in the day. Yeah. Um, so and that's because the, the members get so wealthy, they buy these uh, unique uh, art pieces and what have you, and then they put them in the clubs for safekeeping. Some of the books in that club are worth thousands and thousands. They're like from, like, 1700s. I mean, wow. They like belong in museums. Wow. You know I mean? um, and that's just my club. There yeah. are nine of them. I mean, so you can imagine the collection of art, uh, vases, you know, wood from castles in England. I mean, just kind of like crazy stuff that you wouldn't imagine. So the story is these two guys in 1927 try to break in. One guy disappears. Fast forward to the 80s when I was in, um, in the club, and this young kid is being punched or invited to go through the process of trying to join the club. And as he's going through this process of trying to join the club, his, his good friend talks about the Ancient Nine, which is a rumor, a rumored group of men, nine men who belong to the Delphic, who are behind the scenes, who control everything. And so these two guys want Spencer, the main character, to get into the club so he can verify whether or not the Ancient Nine really exists and what are they really hiding in the Delphic Mansion. Was that based on reality, the Ancient Nine? <laughs> the look on your face you know what I like about that it scares you that question that is really fascinating because I was a fraternity guy right and it's not it's not the same thing obviously but when we pledged and stuff they took it really seriously and this is how we do things and they didn't want any of the outside world to know any 
of uh, the happenings that went inside my frat house. Mm -hmm. So to this day, when I do talk about my fraternity and I've talked about pledging a little bit, every time I do, still in the back of my mind, I get nervous that it's going to piss off some really old member and he's going to hit me over the head as I walk the streets of New York. Because basically saying, you know, we talked about this when you pledge, you never talk about what happens in this house. So when I asked that question, it was fascinating to see your face. Let me answer the what question. What could you say? Let me answer the question this way. These clubs have a history of having people who, behind the scenes, want to make sure that certain things that have been done and said and that are certain things that are owned are kept within the club walls. I can say that very Yeah, but you wrote safely. a book about it. So isn't that going to piss off some people if, if uh, some of this stuff in the book is, is based, well, on, um, it's based on It's based on real events. And hopefully by fictionalizing some of it. Um, so a lot of this book is based on real events that happened in absolutely. the club's history? Oh, my goodness. J.P. Morgan Jr. founded my club. Right. He really founded the club. He right. couldn't get into another club. He said, screw it. I'm going to start my own club. I'm J.P. freaking Morgan. Right. And he starts this club. The first building in Cambridge to have gas because his dad, J.P. Morgan's dad, was friends with Thomas Edison. Wow. So, up in, he, so he was here on Madison Avenue. He had one of the first places with gas lights here. Yeah. And up in Cambridge, his son got it, and that's why they called the Delphic the gas house. Right. So these clubs have secrets. Things have happened, good and bad. And so I think that members... I just sent two copies, by the way, to the club. I just decided. They're right. going to find out about it. So right. I sent, I sent them two copies of the book. It's going out today. Signed it for them, to my brothers of the gas. But hopefully it's a fun story. It's even a great story. Yeah, it's, you know, so even though it's I don't want to give away it. I, I'm, I'm following your lead. I'll talk about any part of the book, and I'll show you that I did read it. But I don't. There's, there's things in there. If I said it, I know you're going to be like, let, let the readers, you know, well, find that out. Well, we could we could talk about those two books that are important. The book with the missing page. Yes, really was from the private library, King James the first. And I went up a few weeks ago to retrace my steps as I did as a senior. And the book is still there under lock and key. And you have to take it out. It's an alarmed room. And you can actually see when the book was donated to the university that the um, acquisitions librarian wrote in cursive from the private library of King James I. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'm going to show you the picture. It's all scarred up. And uh, the rumors about him? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. That I won't give away. Really? You got to read The Ancient Nine by my my pal, Dr. Ian Smith. That rumor... Very true. Wow. And what were the missing pages about? I know you talk about it in your book, but what how you how you talk about it in the book is similar? Uh, yeah. And that's why those pages are missing? Uh, people believe that's why the pages were taken. No kidding. And people believe that that's why the Ancient Nine exists. Right. That's what, because people want to protect certain things. And by the way, scholars around the world have been looking for these pages. Oh, they still haven't found them? Um... Other scholars haven't found them. Let's put it that way. So, scholars haven't found. Okay, them. all right. <laughs> we won't ruin it for the for the reason. Well, what I'm learning here today uh, that there's a lot of, this, like you said, the, this book is based on a lot of stuff that actually happened. Mm-hmm. The the at the end of the book, I won't give away that either. But at the end of the book, when I talk about the Nazi looted art, yes, I'll just put it like that. Yeah, that's a real story. Based on, on your final club? The fact of what happened and how that room disappeared 
is a true story. So if someone reads the book and Googles it, you're going to read. It's a it's an unbelievable history, by the way, of what, how they dissembled that room so and how it's disappeared. So I think you're going to piss off some members of your old uh, final club, huh? Well, isn't by, it a, it's, by, a, it's a balancing act. Look how many people are going to be or love the story, though. It's a great story. So, it, it has a, a Da Vinci Code feel to it. Yeah, people say that. They keep saying that. Yeah, because you're because in this book, the main character is running around all over Harvard and Boston, Cambridge in general, going to New York and all these places. Just which is what we do, trying to find the next clue. So for 25 years, you worked on this book. Yeah, tweaking it and changing it and. And doing more research. Would you just put it aside for years at a time, mm-hmm. and then pick it up? And you know what happened? People would because I wrote the Blackbird Papers, which is my first novel back in two thousand four, which is about a murder on the campus of Dartmouth, where I went to medical school in the first two years. But people would see me, and out of fifteen people who would talk to me about my books, one person would mention, "When are you going to write another novel?" Really? They would do that, and I would go crazy because I, I've been wanting to do it. And I've been writing these diet books, and for someone to like goad me like that, I'm like, geez, I know, I know, I know, I'm supposed to be doing that. Well, you, I mean, I think you're a bit insane because, uh, I, like I said, no offense to the diet books because they obviously paid the bills and they were very successful. But knowing that you have such skills in writing, that's that's what I picked up. I'm like, damn, this Ian could write. I know, write for real. So no, my point is that not getting being able to write novels. For the most part, and and going, you know, the the diet book uh, route that must have been really frustrating to you. Well, it was artistically because you know the publishers, and you know this in, from radio, when something works, they want to milk that cow to the freaking udders to the ground practically. So you know the health and wellness and diet books have been so successful, and I'm grateful for that. I don't mean to sound yeah, yeah, like yeah. that they year after year, this one, that one, this one. Of course, I can go keep coming up with good ideas if they want that one. Finally, I said to them. Guys, this is it. Like, I got to take a year off and publish this work. This this is important to me. I don't care if it sells five copies. Yeah. This is a great story that I've been wanting to tell my whole life. And I started getting worried that someone was going to write this book before me. Okay. And really, I was. Because um, you hear the stories about someone who's had an idea and it comes out. Sure. So I said, guys, this book has got to come out. And then with the recent controversy in particular about the, the administration trying to disband the clubs or penalize the students in the clubs and members. I said, I got to get this book out. Right. And you picture, uh, you paint a great picture of Cambridge, Harvard, and Boston. I, I, I missed it because I lived up there for three years. I, I miss Boston now after reading this book. Well, I think that and me as a reader, because I'm a voracious reader, as a reader, I love stories where this, where the environment and the scene, the location is also a character. Yeah. Right, and the same thing in Netflix movies. Like I like when when the vibe and the pulse of the city, like Michael Connelly's thing on Amazon, uh, Bosch. I like that L.A. Yeah, like a character. Yeah, the beat of it. You know, I, I mean? get it. Yeah, so I wanted to. I, for those who don't know Cambridge and Boston, I want you to feel. Oh, like I felt there, it. Like I felt like campus. I was there again, and I told my wife, "I'm like, and he doesn't over uh, describe things. Thank God. <laughs> Some of these books, I'm like, I get <laughs> it." <laughs> You're you're on a, a you know a dark street and it's fall and the leaves are falling and it's like all right I understand I've been on that street move on but they're, they're just you're trying so to right. get they're just trying to get too poetic yes. and it's like oh my god move yes. on and and there's no corniness in this book yeah sometimes writers could get a bit corny yeah no I want there's to, none of that I wanted to keep it moving because I like books that keep moving I don't want to get stuck anywhere but I also you know to me a good book or a good story is like a collection of scenes 
that kind of weave their way mm-hmm. on a necklace. And so each scene has to grab you by itself. You don't want a situation where you say, oh, I'll just make it through this chapter just to get to the next one. No. Right. Each scene, each place this guy goes, I want you to feel something about yeah. it. Yeah. And it not just be filler. And that's, yeah. that's the hard part, but I think that's the part good authors have to do. Well, a sign of a good book... <laughs> Is when you're reading and you're not like seeing how many more pages to go before the chapter's over because we all like will stop at a chapter, right? Yes. You know the chapter's over. I can put the book down and go do something else. I never found myself going how many more pages for this particular chapter. So that's a very acute observation. So, so the first time I really realized I wanted to write this kind of fiction was when I was a freshman between my high school and uh, senior year and freshman year. My aunt. Uh, in my small town, she's a voracious reader, and she had, she and I had like a little book club. And she'd say, "You should go read this, read that." And she said to me, "Go read this book called The Firm." Yeah. By this guy named John Grisham. Yeah. This is before anyone knew right. this guy. It was you know this paperback book. It was you know, and so I went to my little hometown. There was a little store that was a fifty percent off discount store, and. Uh, I found out as I got older, it doubled actually as an adult shop in the back. I didn't even know that. But the front half was all these books that were hardcovers that were half off. Holy cow. How did they do this? Anyway, so I went and got the firm. And when I got that book, I'm telling you, I was driving in my car in my little town. And when I'd get to a red light, I was trying to get sentences in. When I went to a stop sign, I'm trying to see, okay, can I get turned to the next page? I was doing all this crazy stuff. And it was so kind of, I was so involved and engrossed that I said to myself, one day I want to be able to write a book that can capture someone's attention or desire and imagination like this guy did. Um, I didn't meet that, but but I, but I people who have, have read the book so far have said to me, I really like wanted to keep going. And, and you know, someone just said to me, I, he was up to 3 o'clock in the morning, and this yeah. guy doesn't even read. Right. Trying to see what happens in the next chapter. So that but it, definitely, it definitely has a John Grisham feel to it. Absolutely. So I didn't even, I don't think I, I even knew you went to Harvard. You didn't? I don't think so, because you don't yeah. brag about it. Nah. Because they're from Chica- You're from Chicago. I'm originally. from Connecticut. Oh, I didn't know. I that. just yeah, but I made the character from Chicago. Oh, I always yeah. thought you were always from Chicago, right up the street. So why'd you move to Chicago? Kids, life, yeah. wife. Is you know, she from there? Yeah. yeah oh, that's yeah, why. Yeah, yeah. That, that's and, always the case. Yeah, and you know, also, my job I can do anywhere. You know, I, I can do TV. I fly in for TV. I go to LA. I go to New York. So my job. What part of Connecticut? Danbury. Danbury. About an hour and five minutes. And how was 84. it? How was it going to Harvard? Was it uh, was it diverse back then? Um, you know, it was it was okay. It's definitely more diverse now, for sure. But for the time, it was okay. I mean, we you know we had plenty of minority students, so we could have bonds and stuff like that. But to be honest with you, I'm an athlete. Right. So my whole life, I grew up with everybody. It doesn't. It Wait, did you get recruited to play there? Yes, but there are no scholarships there. But they can like ask you to come to the school. We'd like you to play for us. But you know, for me. For me, it's very interesting. I had a very diverse experience. Listen, I was a member of one of these clubs that was 99% white. Um, and Harvard at the time was probably 85% white. But, it, you know, guys, it's different for guys than girls. You know what I mean? Guys can hang out together. Yeah. We can find commonality in something. Absolutely. Right? Girls, it's like, it doesn't happen that often. Like the black girls hung out with the black girls, the white girls hung out with the white girls. And they didn't mix that much. Dudes were like, hey, yeah, we're going, you know, we're going down to Noakes, grab a cheesesteak, some pizza, but doesn't matter. Or you're at the dining hall and you're sitting down and you just strike a conversation. It's just, that's a guy-girl thing. And that's why I'm glad I'm a guy. That's one of the reasons, because I really feel like this whole socialization or this, the problems with socialization, women to women, 
is like the stress my wife talks about. You know, my wife or my female friends will talk about like how this one did this to her. I'm like, jeez. <laughs> like, I don't even think in those terms. We right. don't even, like, think about stuff like that. Well, because guys are generally just stupid. <laughs> we just, we're not, we're not that complex. Nah. We like to think we are, but we're not. Nah, this stuff, they, but women, hating on women, women that's oh. a big one, man. And the levels and the layers that they go through to do it. I'm like, you guys, don't you have better stuff to do than that? Right. You know, I say my wife all the time. And my wife actually does not have a lot of female friends. And I said to her, why? She says, it's it's too much work. You know, like, it's too much work. Whereas guys, like, if I don't see my guy for a couple months, it doesn't matter. When I do see him, it's like old times. Like, yeah. pick right back up. Yeah. With women, if they don't see each other, oh, you know, I'm not going to call her. She hasn't called me in two. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Holy the, cow. That's the difference right there. Guys can pick up from uh, where they left off. Yeah, no, no problem. problem. No. I'm not going to sit there and say, you haven't called me in two months. How dare you do yeah. that? I thought we were friends. No. I haven't seen you probably in six months, and I saw you on the street, and it was like old times. Like nothing ever happened. Yeah, you know? next thing you know, we're just wandering around. And, <laughs> That's great. You know, checking things out. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, just checking out some cool things. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, you had asked me a question before yes. about seeing this as a series. So, knock on wood, I have a meeting tomorrow. With Hollywood, the big age. Ooh. Yeah, I can I see this as a movie. I know. But you know Hollywood. These guys promise you everything and then right. it fizzles out. But I'm going to be optimistic because that's my nature. But uh, tomorrow, um, I'm on the phone with them. They're you know interested. What, you know what Hollywood's all about, though. I know. They'll buy the rights to the book and then by the time it comes out, you're like, I don't even <laughs> recognize this. <laughs> right? <laughs> Exactly. We need we need a Mexican character. We need another strong female lead. Harvard, Cambridge. No, it can't be that. I think we need it to be in Erie, Pennsylvania. So you know, my whole thing is going to be very simple. I just want a, an extra. Just let me have one like three second extra role. I'll let you do. The how movie. cool is that? That'd be cool, right? So how was uh, so it wasn't a fraternity officially. So how was pledging? Uh, we call it punching. Um, right, um, but it was it was interesting. Why do they call it punching instead of pledging? They just call it punch. Just to be a little different. Yeah, you're a punchy, right? Versus a, a pledge, right? Um, uh, and you or you, and you say I got punched for right. this club. Um, so anyway, so it was interesting because, like I said, and and the reason the uh, sorry the final yeah. clubs are in Harvard and Cambridge because they they got away they did away with all the fraternities and sororities yes. a long time yes. ago, right? And what so, was the reasoning for because that? Because they felt as though that. Same-sex organizations were not contributory to a diverse, integrated campus uh, for student body. It felt like it was too divisive. And what year was that? Well, I, I, I'd have Ish. to guess, but probably sometime in the 50s. Oh, okay. 40s. I think that's stupid because I think, I, I really feel like there are times when men need to just I, be yeah, men. I, I never understood and, that. I, 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 I don't, don't understand why women need to be part of some of these big clubs. And I'm, I, I definitely label myself a feminist to a point. But when they were trying to get into, like, uh, Augusta and stuff like that, yeah. I'm like, why, why would you want to do that? I mean, there's plenty of powerful women out there. Why wouldn't they start their own their own clubs and organizations? Well, why, good... why would they have to go into these established clubs and really kind of... Kind of, uh, I don't know. Change the culture. Of yeah, the thank you. Change okay. the whole culture of the thing. But let me answer that. And um, and I'm a feminist also, by the way. I was raised by a single mom, and so um, women's rights are very important to me. But the reason why at Harvard they can't start their own clubs, and they tried, is because they don't have the money. 
These clubhouses are $15 million mansions. And by the way, there are no more mansions left because either the clubs own them, private businesses own them, or Harvard, the school owns them. So they don't have a physical space. That's a problem. Gotcha. Gonna, you don't want to meet in the bottom of the dining hall. Right. I mean, that's not a real, right? right. And they, they tried that, by the way. And, it's, you know, it doesn't have the same feel. Okay. Going into your clubhouse where you can, you know, have dinner together, have lunch. You have people, a staff cooking for you. So that's one thing. The other thing I say is that I don't have a problem with women joining clubs. I think that the club should open up. I don't know if women really want to be around guys in the way that these guys are in the club. And we're not doing anything bad, by the way, but we're yeah. being guys. Yeah. And I don't think that most women want to be around guys when they're being quote-unquote guys. Right. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Why shouldn't, you know, guys are guys, right? We're talking about stuff, we're having jokes, whatever. That's completely appropriate for us. I don't know if women, once again, I'm, I'm for it opening up. I don't know if women even want to be part of that. What women do miss, however, is I can pick up the phone and call my man at J.P. JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, who's the senior vice president. Yeah. And they can't do that. So that's a... I don't think that's fair. I, I think that, that they lose that network. And I think that women... I think that's what they feel. I don't think they really, really want to hang out with dudes, especially that age in college. Like, you know, college dudes are not... I just feel like they just want to ruin everything. <laughs> I don't, they must be having fun in there. Let's ruin it. <laughs> that is your unique opinion. I don't... I don't I'm laughing. I don't share that opinion, but I think it sounds pretty funny the way you say it. Well, I said it in a funnier voice, too, so to, to show that I'm just kind of having fun with yeah, the whole situation. Because yeah, yeah. I also think it's ridiculous with that that one asshole guy decides he has to be a Hooters waitress. <laughs> You've seen those stories, right? Can you say asshole in this establishment? Well, as you did very quietly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they've said worse in there, I'm sure. Um, you know what's interesting is that... Um, People have an, a vision of Harvard, and I'm always interested in what people think about it because it's so much. It's so much of my life of who I was in my formative years, so I have my own opinion. Yeah. But I'm always intrigued by people's impressions from the outside of what of what Harvard means to them or what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, because I love my school. I don't love it because it's Harvard. I love the school because I believe people should love their schools. It's a, it's a gorgeous campus. It's when I campus. lived in Boston, I told you I would bike and inline skate mm-hmm. up and down the Charles River, yeah. and I would always make it a point to to stop in Cambridge and just walk around the town. It's awesome. It's awesome. And then every every once in a while, I would walk around the, the campus, and you were walking by these clubs and didn't even know about. No, them. no idea. Yeah. And the uh, just the history there, and it just feels. Special. I don't. I. I, I yeah, can't no, explain no, it, it. And then it's. It and then the whole campus is right on the Charles River. It's, it's just. It's very scenic. The boats hit. out. The guys are rowing crew out in the water sometimes. And I went to head of the Charles a head couple of, times. You. You uh, write about head of the Charles in the ancient nine. Yeah. And that brought back memories because I don't care about rowing. But well, it was, what a what a festive <laughs> event that is, man! Great, right? Awesome. And, I mean, it, sometimes it sucks as a Harvard student because the campus is basically on lockdown because <laughs> there's so many visitors that come to Cambridge for, and it's a great festival. Don't get me wrong, but as a Harvard student, you're like, it's like here in New York, like when the president comes to the UN, you're like, ah, oh, jeez, yeah. The city's to- so gridlocked, like it's an honor to have the president here, but and so when the head of the Charles happens, which is by the way this big boat race that happens, uh, and people from all over the world come, when that happens, our school is totally on lockdown because I don't want people doing crazy stuff. So we're like, let's just make it through the weekend. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We're like, let's make it through the weekend. Is Harvard that much harder? As far as the college goes, I think there are a lot of hard schools. I mean, I went to I went to Columbia to get my master's. I went to Dartmouth. 
I went to University of Chicago to finish but what, school. But what makes it so special, then? The history of it. You know what? This is what I try to tell people at Harvard. Harvard has a way of breeding excellence. They don't sit there and lecture you and didactically say to you, you need to do this. It's the feeling you get that you are surrounded by excellence. You're surrounded by driven people. And you understand when you walk on that campus as a freshman that your classmates are the future leaders of the world. You respect that, but you also are motivated to say, hey, I want to be one too. You know what I mean? You don't want to be left behind. So that kind of that kind of that lifts up everybody. It lifts everyone up. Yeah. Not that you're being competitive, though there are people competitive, but it's like you want to feel like, hey, I belong too. Right. And that's why you get these uberly driven people at Harvard. I mean, you know, the Zuckerbergs of the world. You right. know, he's Zuckerberg is not unique. There no. are a thousand Zuckerbergs at Harvard. He got lucky and you know, as you know, like I do, success sometimes is based on luck. Sure. Right? There are a lot of skilled people who didn't get good breaks. Right. And therefore, they're not, you don't know who they are. But the stars weren't aligned. The stars weren't aligned. At that moment in time. That's right. For that person to. That's right. My grandfather would always say, I'd rather be lucky than good. Right on, man. If I had to choose one, I'd be lucky because you can be good. If you ain't got the luck, yeah. your history. So, uh, getting back, so you you uh, you punched. I punched. The, the final club. <clears throat> and and what, what was the pledging like? It was interesting. So, we had all these series of events that I mentioned in the book. I won't. You know, give away the plot too much, but we had all these different events, and you know, we're going to these mansions, the alum, alums' houses, um, and we're having dinner with adults. It's kind of weird as a as a teenager, you don't typically mingle with adults socially, right? right? But we were like going to these like alums' houses, like they're in their houses, like I'm sitting in their like dining rooms. Having what, what do you think that's about for real? Because at my case, <laughs> he's laughing again. The way he said that. Because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, like, <laughs> I went to Geneseo, you know, a SUNY school, no big deal. Although now it's pretty prestigious in, a, in a, a school that's a little tougher to get into. But when I went, for real, it was a drinking school. It was all my parents could afford, meaning I could afford, because right. they, ha- they didn't give me any money for college. <laughs> Which, uh, which bothers me because I was really good in school. And then around 11th grade, I started looking at colleges and they're like, yeah, we can't afford any of these. I'm like, oh, great. Wait, wait, wait. But could they not afford it? They didn't want to afford it. No, couldn't. One of oh, seven kids. Oh, no, I, I grew up pretty uh, pretty poor, to be honest. Um, well, that's but, fair. It's not a bad indictment on them. No. But, I mean, they, they, they insisted that we study hard and, you know, be uh, disciplined with our schoolwork. And then when it was time for the payoff, they... You know, they're like, well, oh, by the way, you're on your own as far as college goes. I'm like, oh, geez, thanks. <laughs> but anyway, I, I pledge a fraternity at Geneseo, and I always found it creepy when the old guys were around. <laughs> and I always thought, like, yeah, okay, you know, you're you're an older guy now, and you get to see, you know, young college girls. I get that angle, but it, it was a little weird, man. I think that I think that, that they were hanging around. Yeah, well, we don't hang around like that. I know what you're saying. No. The, the older alums, the grad alums, the grad members, they go to specific events. So we have a dinner here, for example. So all the grads will come down with the undergrads. We have a nice dinner, tell jokes, they smoke cigars, have fun, boom, you're done. They don't socialize like, oh, we're going to the club or going to a bar afterward. No, no. Yeah. At that point, the young guys will go. To, but, but I think that a lot of older guys, and I'm getting older myself, I think that, some, I think that in a way you kind of relive your your glory days. Yeah, I get that. I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. Like, you feel like... Because I had such great experiences in that club with my clubmates. 
and so I'm, I'm very affectionate about how, how my time was. So to go back to campus and go into the club, you know, and see some of these old guys or see some of the young guys who are coming up like I was, like it's cool to see that. And it brings you right back. Absolutely, 100%. Did you really squeeze the banana in the toilet bowl? Don't give that away. That, that, we could give that line away. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so did I. I That's ter- why I'm asking you. I was you. terrified. I didn't know what that was. Well, I thought, you know, I thought it was real. I thought it was crap. I'll just say when I was pledging and we had to go in the bathroom and they, they pointed out that a certain sorority was there leaving big duties in the toilet and it was our job to take care of the mess and we were blindfolded yep. and, and I reached in. That was the easy part of my pledging. That was easy? That was the easy part. I'm like, I can handle this. I think the hardest part for a lot of my guys, I don't and, drink, so they didn't make me drink. And let me let me let you in on a little secret. I okay. could say it's true for my fraternity. So, you know, the gag is you put bananas in the toilet bowl and the pledges think it's, you know, duty because they're yeah. blindfolded. In my fraternity, guys worked all week to try to get a duty that was that big. So they, Are you serious? So they did it for real. Oh, yeah. For real? You might have done it for real. You had the blindfold on. No, they showed us afterward. Why would they show you? Because we're going to do it to the next group. Well, so we, we all understood that. Yeah, but, but no, they showed oh, us. But every fraternity has a... Afterward, uh, they showed us. Not, not while we were doing it. Like, no, so, I understand. Yeah, after I showed you. In a book, like after the guy goes oh, around, you, he sees all the... They different. never gave it away. Oh, they didn't? No. And then when I was, you know, then I'm officially a brother, then I saw how sick some of these guys could be. <laughs> 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 Were you a sick brother? No, no. No, you weren't. I, uh, I was an individual that uh, pledged a fraternity, so I had a major conflict. Geneseo was all about fraternities and sororities, and I realized early on that I don't know if I could totally commit to being a brother to the fraternity. Yeah. And then they came to my room in the middle of the night uh, when I was pledging because I was trying to quit. Wow. Uh, I felt like at the time it wasn't for me, but in the end I liked it. I did. And they basically gave me a lecture like, it's much better that you continue pledging than be a guy that quit pledging. Oh, jeez. They ran guys out of uh, Geneseo that quit. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Wait, wait, wait. Let me get this right. You're saying if a guy was going through the pledging process and they quit in the middle of it. Yeah. And he so he's no longer connected. They would still mess with the dude? And and to the point where uh, these guys would leave leave the college. What were they doing to him? It was intense. Because, you know, they were in on some of the secrets already. Oh, you know, um, pledging is pretty secretive. Yeah, 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 so yeah. you're going through it, and you're like, oh, now you know what we do. Dude, we can't we have it. that. You can't be on campus as one of these guys that didn't go all the way, and you know some of the secrets. Oh, yeah. It was the fraternity and sorority uh, system in Geneseo back when I went to school was pretty, pretty severe and I mean, intense. With the final clubs, with these clubs, they start with about a, each club starts with about 100 punchies. And then after each round, they whittle that number down until they get to the final number, which is typically anywhere between 12 and 20 guys. So it's a pretty streamlined process all the way down. Um, and But you don't know, of course, you don't find out all the secrets until you actually become a member and you go through initiation night and you get to finally go upstairs into the... Yeah. That was actually a pretty cool experience. After spending so much time like on the outside and wondering what's inside, and then finally that night... Of initiation to be able to go upstairs and like take the blindfold off and see the clubhouse. That was I, that I was awesome. Have, I still have the feeling of, of what of was that the most uh, intense thing you had to do as pledge, as a pledge or a, a punchy. I think that I think that the fake plastic lips. <laughs> I think the bathroom was. Oh really? Yeah. You didn't have to deal with the the fake lips. No. 
my fraternity not not ours either. We heard rumors though. Yeah, yeah. We heard rumors about like doing some things with you know there's yeah. women over there in the Harvard Club, so I don't yeah, we don't want to stress some of the rumors of what the other fraternities were doing were in pretty crazy same with us too by the way because each club has its own kind of rituals right and so I have to admit that our club was pretty mild compared to what I've heard yeah and knew about other clubs and I was happy because I, I gotta tell you something I was like you I was a very independent guy yeah and at some point I'm gonna stand up and say that that like this is a this is a line deal for me I can't cross this line but so I didn't I didn't get to that and the guys also respect I was a basketball player the guys respected they were just respected me. They knew that I didn't drink alcohol. They knew I wasn't like a rowdy guy. I'm just not in my nature. Yeah. So they didn't really force me to do stuff. You, you didn't have to bomb the DK house? No. You want to know what that is? <laughs> that sounds pretty bad. You might want to move closer. <laughs> so the DK house was our arch you know, rival, uh-huh. right? So we had to take care of the DK house and bomb of his pledges. So we had a, a drop trow. I think I'm old enough to, that I can finally say this without being scared. Brothers going to be, yeah. you know, coming after me. Yeah. And then we had to, uh, well, we had to pick up a marshmallow with our cheeks, not using our hands. And then we had a waddle, all blindfolded. And the, you know, the the brothers would tell us when we're hovering over the quote DK house. And then we had to drop our bombs. <laughs> was this during the day or at night? No, pledging was always at night, man. And could anyone see you do this? Like who who? I don't know anyone outside of your. I would. I'll tell you this much, man. You know, with all this social media and everyone with phones, oh, I would not oh. fucking <laughs> pledge with a blindfold on. No way. No way. You know, back I, then you had to rent rent a camcorder <laughs> from the AV department to hopefully get something on video. You remember that? Pretty oh, cool that. Yeah. Rent camcorders. Yeah. So no, I, I I laugh now. I think about if they had stuff, the social media that they have today back then. Half the stuff, I mean, if someone's in their right mind, we'd never have have been part of. But also, it's, you know, like I said, it's behind closed doors, and that's kind of the mystique of the club is that these are things that you share. That also forms the bond, right? Yeah. Because you went through this stuff with your, with your guys in your class. But there's no privacy anymore. Because, nah. like, the kids today, they're, you know, they, they have the Snapchat, and they're just like... Here's my, here's my, you know what? Yeah. Well, here's my, you yeah. know what? Yeah. I guess we're dating now. Yeah, but I tell you, you know, and they do it like it's nothing. Yeah, but I gotta tell you, I, I think that, um, I think I don't know if I were running these clubs these days, I would like make a no cell phone policy, right? Because I think that that would be really, that's impossible. People can't stay off their cell phones long enough. I know. So, but it's really intrusive. So it doesn't sound like your pledging was that tough. No, no, I, I gotta be honest, it wasn't. They didn't get you really drunk and really high. I don't drink. And then put a. Some guys got really wasted. Really drunk, really high, put a blindfold on you. Well, the, it was under the guise that today pledging's gonna be easy and we're gonna have a party with uh, the sorority. So you, you go up to the pledge house thinking you're pledging. What, well, I mean, the whole time you were pledging, but thinking it was just another pledge night. Yeah. Next thing you know, surprise, it's a party. And now they're like throwing joints in your face and you're, you're smoking dope and drinking and chugging. And they made sure you got really wasted. And then the turn happened. Like, yeah. all right, everyone. And then they blindfold you, Jeez. tie you up. And depending on how much they liked you as a pledge, do you want to hear this stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> determined how far they were going to drop you off outside of campus and you had to find your way back without I mean obviously I I grew up uh, going to college with no cell phone so no cell phone obviously no wallet they took all your wallet uh, wallets and money so now you're how far away what's the first that would take someone 
Uh, they took a, a few people to Canada. Stop it. I mean, I'm in Geneseo, which is western New York, but still, you're talking a few hours. Couple, and dropped them A couple-hour ride, yeah. And then how'd these guys get back? Well, that was the thing, because then we had a bar called The In-Between. <laughs> and, like no, and, and some guys, you know, Geneseo is like a campus, like it's in the middle of nowhere. So mm-hmm. as soon as you get outside this tiny little town, it's all farmland. Mm. So a lot of them, they would drop off in the fields, you know, five, six miles out. And you could sort of, if you could figure it out, see like the lights that look like Geneseo. Like, I guess we got to head that way. And no cars, like all well, country five roads. miles? In the middle of winter. Pledging was in the winter. And um, and it was the best because they would drop you off in a field and they're like, all right, count to 100 and, you know, and, and you better get, you know, uh, get all the way to 100 before you take your blindfolds off. And I'd be the asshole going after 20 gone, they're long gone. And I would take my blindfold off and they'd be right in your face. Oh, no. <laughs> Back in the car. So now they drop you off further because you didn't follow the rule. And would everyone get punished because you messed up? In that group, yeah. I forgot how many were in a group. I think like three or four guys. Yeah, we had four guys. In and then, um, then everyone was... You was told when you get back to campus, go to the in-between, and we had our spot in the bar. And then it was kind of festive because, oh, my God, here comes Buzzy. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, here like comes they, Stork. Like they made it back all from excited, the war, right? Yeah, all excited. <laughs> Come here. And now it's all cool again, yeah, and let's yeah. drink some more. Yeah. But then the Pledge Master... Uh, every year would stay up all night because there was always a, a, a few that didn't make it. We had a punch master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That didn't make it back until the next day. Jeez. And they were sweating it out at the frat house. Like, God, I hope we... Something didn't happen to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez. Now, you, yeah, you definitely had a more intense process than we did. Also, you know, like I said, these clubs, you know, these guys really want to get in. They really want to be part of this brotherhood. Mm-hmm. A lot of them want to know what's inside because there's the rumors are so long and so deep. They want to see what's inside. And I would assume every final club wants to outdo the other final clubs. Absolutely. So they try to get the even cooler stuff Absolutely. in there and rarer Absolutely. stuff we in there. We got this. We got that. We, you know, um, they do like a what they call a New York dinner. So some of, some of the process, they'll fly guys to New York just for dinner. Now, it may not sound like much now, but back in the day, to like take a plane to New York to eat and then fly back... That's cool. That's cool. That was like you're 18, 19 years old. That's cool. That's as cool, shit. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so, so yeah, these clubs outdo each other, and you know the level of wealth and power. You know, these kids like their dads like they winter right in Florida. Right. You know, anytime someone uses winter as a verb, right? Okay, now you're talking. Um, I'll never forget these guys were at the cocktail party in this mansion. That was the first event. These guys were talking about their dad's private plane and flying down to the Bahamas for the weekend. What? Wow. I mean, I didn't even know what private planes were back right. then. Forget about let right. alone someone had one. Right. That's crazy. It's sick. It's a sick world. So you didn't have any brothers where now our fraternity house was at the top of a hill in a residential area. So the town, the town and the campus hated us because mm. we were one of the rare ones that actually owned our house. Oh. So everybody hated us. <laughs> So we would walk back up the hill, uh, you know, after the bars closed at 1, 2 in the morning, whatever the, whatever it was back then. And, you know, you would come across one of your brothers that's high on uh, LSD, <laughs> burning geez. the Bible, screaming at the devil. Oh, gee. Are Do you, you have any of those? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> First of all, these guys, are, these guys would be too scared to get kicked out. 
our guys would be too scared to get kicked out of school. This guy was in the middle of the road. I don't want to mention his name because he's like uh, a, a pretty uh, successful English teacher that uh, really? that teaches abroad. Yeah, he's, he got his act together, but. We'd be walking up, and he'd be out of his mind, tripping, burning a Bible in the middle of the street Why is in he a residential. A Bible? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, was, what, what was up? Why, why burn the Bible? I don't know. I mean, he also loved Black Sabbath, but I don't know if there's a connection there. <laughs> really smart guy, by the way. Really smart. He got me into reading, like reading for real. You and know? now he's a legit professor, huh? Yeah, he's he's he does okay for himself. So, it's our experiences are different. Did you know your dad? No. Not at all? No. I mean, very little. You know, I was a single so kid. Like, like Spencer, it's true. Spencer was a... Spencer's the main character in Ian Smith's book called uh, The Ancient Nine. And uh, the character in the book didn't know his father. No, either. didn't know his dad. It's him and his mom. What's the story with, with your dad? Just, you know, some guys fade out. You know, they just faded, basically. I was too young, so I didn't know what, what How happened. How old were you? Uh, infant, I don't remember. Him leaving. He didn't get along with your mom? Yeah, just, you know, it was like the 60s, you know, two kids, probably stressed out. But, you know, what's interesting Did is... Did you hear rumors over the years where no, he was? My mother, my mother never even, um, she never even talked bad about this guy. It really was just us. Like, I grew up, it was us and my extended family, my grandparents, cousins and aunts. So I really didn't know. It's, it's interesting. When you don't know a situation, you can't miss it. So I didn't know it. I, my life was... I had a mom, I had grandparents and aunts and uncles, and we were all, they were all interchangeable. That was your family. That was my family. Right. And so it wasn't like, you know, there were, I mean, geez, there'd be times where you say, geez, I wish I could have a dad who could like, like go to a football game or better yet, you know, some guy's talking smack to you. Right. You wish you had your dad could sit there and say, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to get my dad. Right. Like I missed that. Right. But, but, you know, I love being a father to my two boys. But is he alive? No, he's no longer alive. But d- so you guys sort of knew where he was over the years? Yeah. Eventually we found out where he was. It just was, you know, it's interesting. It's just a re- weird kind of situation where we just didn't have, and I didn't even really have, like, you know, some kids say they want to know the truth. I was good. Did I was you, good. Did you learn the truth? I learned the truth. I mean, it was, it was nothing mystical about it. Right. But I learned the truth. I was like, okay, well, and I, as I got older, I realized, hey, listen, relationships you know, things happen in relationships. And I felt like whatever happened between him and my mom was their business. And me kind of coming in, playing detective, and then trying to pass judgment on a situation that you're never going to know. There are three sides to every story. Yeah. His side, her side, and the truth. And the truth. So it just wasn't worth it. It was like, okay, I accept that we're with my mother. We love her. She's, like, sacrificing for us. We're going to make it work. Got right. be successful, work hard, do the right thing. And you didn't come around at all, really? No. It's kind of hard to imagine because I love my kids so much, and you do, you love your kids. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine any situation that I may have with my wife that would prevent me from being with my kids in some capacity. Sure. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to restrain me. You'd have to do you'd have to you'd have to physically stop me from seeing my kids. Did he have some uh, like major issues that prevented it? No. Like addiction no. or anything. Oh no 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 no. He just. I, did he start a new family? New family. He did? Yeah. With uh, other kids? Yeah. So, what, you know, I guess their relationship went sour. He went and did his thing, and she had us. And uh, we struggled. Like you. I mean, we didn't have seven kids, but we struggled. Yeah. You know, um, my mom had to work like three jobs to put us through college, you know, because Harvard doesn't have scholarships, you know. 
So we worked really hard. So in the book... Was she happy with you, but also like, why did you have to pick Harvard? <laughs> no. I mean, she wanted I'm kidding. It. That's more yeah, of a yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. She was like... She was like... We'll, we'll figure it out. Go. Yeah, we got to go. That's awesome. And that's why in the book, you know, he's like... When he's going through this process of joining this club that is extremely expensive, because there's also issues... These clubs cost money, by the way. Yeah. He had this pang of guilt, like, geez, how am I going to pay for this thing? You know, because my mother is struggling already. Yeah. But he does pay for it, and then some, but we won't give that away of how he's able right. to pay for it. But, but yeah, I mean, I had, that's why the, the character is so closely linked to kind of how I, the emotions I had. In fact, one of my friends who was reading it was like, man, I never knew this. I never knew you saw things this way. Because he said, I, it's a whole different angle. Yeah. You know. It's, it's a great book for real, brother. For real. Uh, it's a page the fact turner. That, the fact that you read it, and, and I know first, that you, how busy first, you are. It's the first book I've uh, read all, you know, cover to cover in a while. And I think it's gotten me back into reading. I'm like, I was telling my wife, God, I miss reading. There's nothing like a great book. I miss it. When you get a good book, the and phone and everything else don't mean shit. Nothing. You can't wait to find time to read another that's chapter. Right. And that's what I found in this book, The Ancient Nine. That's right. I'm on a plane and I'm just reading, yeah. having a good time. Yeah. You know. So uh, to change subjects, because yeah. we're going to wrap up in a few, yeah. but um, you know, I have to ask you some like food questions because yes. people... You know, people are constantly trying to, like, lose weight out there. Give, give us some basic knowledge. Well, everyone's trying to do this keto thing. Yeah, what is that? Uh, so keto, basically, without getting all technical. My friend Chris Stefano is on it. Yeah, so keto, basically, mm. is you are eating high-fat foods, high-fat, high-protein, very low carbs, if any at all, to make your body biochemically shift into a state called ketogenesis. And basically what that means is that your body will start using your fat and ketone bodies in order to fuel mm -hmm. rather than glucose. So the reason why people are losing weight is because they're not look the body's not looking for glucose for energy, which is typically your number one source of energy for the body. They're now looking for ketones and fat mm. that come out of, that are made from the fat. So you, that's why you drive into the fat. And that's why it's so successful. Ketone, uh, ketogenesis works. However, it's a very tight biochemical state and you can't blow it. So if you mess up one day, forget it. You got to start over. Induct absolutely. Oh. It, it's, it's so, so it's it's a, it's effective. But the problem is when you come off of it, you gain it all back. Right. Because the reason why it's working is because you've kept yourself in this state. But you can't stay in ketogenic ketogenic state forever. Well, I think that's the problem with all diets. Is as soon as you lose the weight, you're like, I'm good now. And then you didn't really <laughs> learn any good eating habits. So obviously, you're going to put the weight back on. So my last book in, uh, from April, The Clean 20, 20 Foods, 20 Days, Total Transformation, says this isn't about dieting. This is about taking the best foods you can get and being smart about it and making better decisions. Because I agree with you. I don't think diets per se work for most people. For some people, they do. But I'm more interested in what can you do that's sustainable so that you can come, go out to lunch, go out to dinner, and, and not be obsessed with, oh, my goodness, are they going to have this? Are they going to have that? No. You'll be able to make whatever they have work yeah. and realize, you know what, if I'm going to go you know, a little to the left on lunch, I'll make it up on dinner. Right? That's mm -hmm. the mindset I want you to be in. I want you to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, life is fun, and you don't want to go crazy about trying to do everything that's right. Right. But how do you strike a balance? And that's what I try to teach in my books. And what are the 20 foods, or some of them? Um, ground turkey, uh, turkey bacon, chicken, seafood, arugula, beans, chickpeas, lentils, avocados, tomatoes. Kale? Lentils. Kale. Oh, I said that a little loud. Sorry. Yeah. 
big meeting going on over I there. Saw, I saw before. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> they're, they're, they're plotting. They're plotting the destruction of the world. Listen, I saw uh, Anthony Bourdain, who I love. I love Parts Unknown. The other night, and and he was. The guy served him something, and I, Kale was in it. Thank God you didn't stop at I saw Anthony Bourdain the other night, because that would have been a, a horror. But I, I have seen him. I did see him in, in real life in London. That's another story. But I, I miss him, man. He used to do my radio show. He was he one of the best guests. Oh, God, He's many awesome. times. Awesome what a guy. Writer. You talk about a writer. Yeah. Just what, did, what do you think he did it? He just wasn't happy. He was a lonely guy. Now, listen, I never even I saw it in his eyes when he would come in, and I, I asked him about... Uh, did you have hope for humanity because he travels the world? And I was surprised. He said, no, I don't. The stuff he sees yeah. and yeah. How, how humans are treated around the world, he, he said, no, I don't really have hope for humanity. We, like, were, we were going to an afternight spot, my family, in London, a very hot spot. And the cab, the black cab that pulls in front of us, the guy gets out and he's stumbling. I was like... Babe, that's freaking Anthony Bourdain right in front of us. She said, where? I said, that is him. And short, I could tell, you know, he's very, you yeah. know, distinguishable. And uh, he was totally drunk, bombed. And I'm like, geez, the paparazzi was outside this place. It was one of those kind of spots. And I was so worried that they were going to catch him. He was completely drink, you know, um, smoking and stumbling. He was by himself with nobody. And they let him go, actually. I was surprised how cool that was. They didn't even... So I think they probably know that. Sure. You know, they're but, giving him a break probably. But when I saw him that night, I said, This guy's lonely. This guy's got issues. You know what I mean? It just wasn't something wasn't right. Yeah. It wasn't right. And then, you know, fast forward five years, four years. Sad man. It's terrible. I anyway, I interrupted you. What were yeah, you I was saying say? so there was a scene where um, they served him something with kale. <laughs> and and I, I'm not gonna do it justice, but basically he was when he was describing the food and he said and God forbid, yes, even Kale. <laughs> like, like, he was so over Kale. <laughs> like, right. and, but he was, he was letting us know he was accepting it on his plate. But don't get it twisted. I'm not... I put Kale in my smoothies, but I, I just despise it if I have to eat it. Oh, I, I do it too. I flood it with berries. I, I do the sweetness. I do Kale, spinach, and pineapple a lot. Oh, well, the pineapple will do a nice little and throw number a little, on it. And throw a little uh, banana in there. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah, do, yeah. I do like one or two, nah, like one smoothie a day. I try. That's anyway. good though. So That's yeah, good. how's uh, how's Strahan doing? He's great. Yeah, I just saw him this morning. Yeah, he's doing great. I love uh, that guy. He's awesome, man. He's got more jobs than. It's crazy how many TV jobs he's got. I'm like, dude, you are in full. You can't do anymore. Literally, like, there's no more hours in the day. You can't yeah. stretch it. But no, he's solid. He's still a solid dude. Fun to be with. We all got to hang out sometime. I would love it. Yeah, you know. that's good. We go. All of us go back. Uh, well, that's what I'm laughing at because of all the rumors you had to deal with. I'm here to say, I'm here to say the rumors weren't true. But you and Strahan took a beating back in the day when he was going a through his beating. divorce. Jeez. He's going through a divorce, and and uh, he's hanging out with you. And there, uh, the rumors were you could you could figure out the rest. But you know what's and, crazy? And as a, a bystander of that, it made me so happy that you had to deal with that. <laughs> but you know what's crazy? Now you look, we can laugh at. It. Now we look back at it. Yeah. Like crazy stuff happens. Whoever in a million years would have imagined. That, that first of all, that his divorce would be so acrimonious, mm-hmm. and that people would make such ridiculous claims. And here I am, like trying to help a friend out. You know what I mean? A friend in need is a friend indeed. Right. That's what I learned in third grade. 
and it was just it was it was. He a needed a place time. to stay, is what you're getting at. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine that Michael Strahan needed a place to stay, but well, we're, we're he, talking like 10, 12 years ago. No, no, he needed a place that the paparazzi wouldn't sell. Yeah, that's yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. He obviously could afford anywhere, but but the issue was that no place was safe because right, you're helping him out. Yeah, that's what I mean by he needed a place. Yeah. But uh, and then you fast forward. I can't believe it's the same guy, man. Same guy. And now he's ready. Bigger, to, bigger than ever. And ready to take on Kelly Ripa. <laughs> <laughs> It's good catching up with you, man. This is awesome. Let the battle begin. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's good catching up, man. Absolutely. Thanks for doing this. I'm glad you love the Ancient Nine. I, I did. What, and, what's uh, the big sell for the book, for real? I think that if you want a book that is suspenseful, that talks about, you know, getting behind the, the walls of privilege with a little love story mixed in and you want a fun ride, Ancient Nine is it. Hit me on Instagram at Dr. Ian Smith. Spell the doctor out. I-A-N Smith. And on Twitter, Dr. D-R Ian Smith. And my email, if you want to, like, Send me a comment. You know I like to get people to know. Sure. Is the ancient nine, spell it all out, the ancient nine at gmail.com. The secret society. It, yeah. It's it's a it's a page turner. I'm really happy for you. Finger crossed for the movie, huh? Uh I could Hopefully. easily see this as a movie. Easily, man. Um, From your mouth to God's ears. So is this your new uh, path now? You're going to try to write more novels? 100%. I'm still going to do my nonfiction. Yeah. But I'm going to, I told my publisher, listen. Do you have another idea in the can? Absolutely. Have you started? Absolutely. Oh, you have? Mm Mm-hmm. Is it similar in... Um, The other thing I want to do is, because I like crime fiction. Right. And I know this sounds really kind of like, this guy just wants to do everything. I want to write a series of books that are private investigator books that can be converted into a Netflix series. Wow. Because I love right. streaming on Netflix. I love those series. Yeah. So I've created a private investigator guy who is in Chicago, former CPD, who is now a private investigator. Okay. And he takes on select cases. His name is Ash Kane, spelled C-A-Y-N-A. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Nothing better than binge watching uh, on Netflix. Isn't it, isn't it unbelievable? Yeah. My wife said the other day, you know what? You're going to turn into Netflix. Because <laughs> I just... I like it. When I, I'm down, I just... I can't be bothered with regular TV. It's just... Forget it at this point. You know what? And I'm so glad that these streaming services are around. Because the arrogance of those four networks... Mm-hmm. Because they had such a monopoly for so mm-hmm. long. Now I feel like, good. I want you guys to struggle. Because right. these guys got you by the balls now. Right. You know what I mean? All these streaming services you can get on your phone, your iPads. How great is it the the major networks are like... They try to stretch out a series for the <laughs> next 13 weeks and Netflix goes... Here's the whole series. Watch it when you want. I'm like, how do you compete with that? Is that phenomenal? That's awesome. I love it. Anyway, dude, thanks for uh, Dr. Dr. Ian Smith, show, huh? my friend. All right, man. I'm so glad I ran into you uh, last week and we were able to do this. All right, awesome. the Ancient Nine, Joey, live from the Harvard Club. I think I think uh, Dr. Ian Smith wants me out of here. He, he feels that I'm going to start really uh, pushing it here. <laughs> I got the hint a couple times in there. Well, it was good to see you. <laughs> I said, wrap it up before you ruin this for I got me. a membership here, kid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joey, take it away. You got it, Greg. We'll leave some links for Ian's book and his social media in our episode description. In the meantime, let's shout out a few friends. Opie Radio Followbacks. So let's look out into our magic window and give a great big Opie Radio followback to the following. Jason at Big Therm underscore 54. At Mr. Sarcasm, M-R-S-A-R-C-A-Z-I-M. At WFNY Craig. At Bowling Ball 1969. At J underscore D-L-E-A-S-E. At Rick Austin 01. 
Ryan Jason at Ryan Jason Berman. Keep up the good fight, buddy. We're with you. JW at Orion's DRM. And at the underscore dude 785. Follow them on Twitter because like you, they get what we're doing here. Rate us five stars at Apple Podcasts. Share the show with a friend. Go to opiradio.com for hats, t-shirts, and other merch. Also for an on-demand stream of the podcast. Until next time, thanks for checking out episode 44 with Dr. Ian K. Smith of OB Radio. The Westwood One Podcast Network, 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Everybody at this point probably knows Jeremy more for his TNA contributions than WCW. But him being on camera sort of as a second for Vince Russo, I guess I just blocked it out. But he's all over this show. There's a reason you blocked it out. Yeah. Subconsciously, you're trying to protect your sanity. That's what that is. 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Free, free. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.